If you like listening to my conversations with interesting people, you'll love listening to them or watching them on Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service where you can get access to these interviews early and ad-free, as well as bonus episodes from my YouTube channel and exclusive series you can't find anywhere else. Sign up for Nebula by clicking the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversationswithjoe to support the podcast and help promote content that matters. This video is supported by Brilliant. On January 21st, Elon Musk put out a tweet saying that he's going to donate $100 million to the best carbon capture technology. And like a lot of Elon's tweets, it generated equal amounts of speculation and snark. Hey, Elon, have you ever heard of a tree? Now where's my $100 million? <laughs> <laughs> oh, f*** you. You know, I've been following carbon capture technology for quite some time now, and every time it comes up, somebody makes a joke to that extent. And they all think they're the first ones to say it. Look, if you want to make the argument that we need to be planting trees, then yes, absolutely, great. Trees are awesome. We do need to be doing that. We need to make up for the trees that we've cut down. But we've done a lot more than just cut down trees. We've actually spent the last century digging up millions of years of dead trees and burning those and putting that up into the atmosphere while cutting down millions of acres of carbon sequestering trees. If we're going to bring our atmosphere anywhere close to pre-industrial levels, we need to be doing more than that. A lot more and fast. Which is why Elon is partnering up with the XPRIZE Foundation to help develop better carbon capture technology. According to the XPRIZE website, the objective of this XPRIZE is to inspire and help scale efficient solutions to collectively achieve the 10 gigaton per year carbon removal target by 2050 to help fight climate change and restore the Earth's carbon balance. Teams can submit entries across natural, engineered, and hybrid solutions, and judges will evaluate the teams based on four basic criteria to make sure the ideas are scalable and sustainable. And 50% of the prize money will go to the winner, the rest will be divided up amongst the runners-up, finalists, and student scholarships. So this is being called the Carbon Removal X Prize, but this is not the first X Prize I've done that's focused on carbon capture. The Carbon X Prize is a competition that's currently ongoing, and the goal of that one is to find uses for carbon, basically to create a value around carbon that would incentivize people to capture it. This new competition is going to go through 2025, and it's going to start on Earth Day, which is April 22nd. So, with all that in mind, I thought this would be the perfect time to finally pull the trigger on this topic and talk about all the various different ways that we can pull carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, the pros and cons of each, and why, like it or not, this absolutely has to be part of our climate change solution. In July of 2020, a study was published in the journal Nature Climate Change where researchers did a study of people's opinions on carbon capture technology. The opinions were, uh, not great. They did the survey in the U.S. and the United Kingdom because we're both countries with highly industrialized economies and they chose a thousand people from six different communities. A rural area, a medium-sized college town, and a big city in both countries. They found that less than 10% of people claimed to know a great deal or a fair amount about carbon capture and that their skepticism fell mostly into two camps. One is about people who are worried about the environmental effects of... Um, well, basically geoengineering, you know, what if we go too far? What are, the, what are the other problems that this could cause? That kind of thing. This was the smaller of the concerns. The far bigger concern was that focusing on carbon capture would basically reduce interest in lowering emissions, that it would give people permission to go ahead and emit more carbon dioxide, basically. And this comes up a lot when talking about carbon capture. It's pretty much the main argument against it. So I wanted to kind of start by addressing that concern. I think a lot of this comes from the fact that CCS, or carbon capture and sequestration, is something that's been advocated by the fossil fuel industry for a while now. Don't get me wrong, they're not exactly psyched about spending billions of dollars to update all their facilities, but if it came between that and having to pay a carbon tax, then that's 
probably what they would rather do. So for them, yes, it is absolutely a play to just keep burning more fossil fuels. Plus their efforts are kind of half-assed. The technology that they use is not very efficient and doesn't actually capture that much carbon. And as I talked about in a previous video, they often use this carbon dioxide to pump into the ground and get more oil out of it. Oil that they would then burn and put back up into the atmosphere. And for these reasons, yes, 100%. I totally get the skepticism and it is well-earned. But we've kind of passed the point where this is really even an option anymore. Like even if the world went 100% carbon neutral tomorrow and we could just snap our finger and make that happen, we would still need to pull a lot of CO2 out of the atmosphere to return to pre-industrial levels. Not to mention the feedback loops that we've already put into motion that by themselves are gonna continue to warm the planet for decades, including the release of methane from thawing permafrost and, and the thawing Arctic, you know, lowering the albedo. And we are nowhere near being emission-free right now. In fact, there's some industries like the airline industry that we don't even have the technology to replace fossil fuels yet. So for me, this argument, it, it, it all comes down to two main points. Number one, in no way is carbon capture a replacement for lowering emissions. And number two, if we are ever going to get to carbon neutral, we have to do both. You know, there's a kind of whataboutism that always comes up around this. Whenever you mention carbon capture, people are like, yeah, what about windmills? What about clean energy and stuff? And it's like, yes, that too, all of that. We have to be doing all the things. What team am I on? I am on team all the things. Actually, you know what this whole argument makes me think of? The debate around sex ed. Like, I'm not sure if this is even still a thing, but when I was in school and AIDS was the scariest thing in the world at the time, there was this whole debate around whether or not they should teach, you know, safe sex to kids in schools because the people against it would argue that, well, that just gives them permission to have sex. But I was always like, but if the goal is to prevent the spread of disease and to stop teen pregnancy and the studies show that teaching safe sex is the best way to do that, then, I mean, what do you really care about? The results of the behavior, you know? I guess carbon capture is kind of like the condom of the energy industry, if you put it that way. Of course, that would make the carbon, Ew. So unless we want the fossil fuel industry spewing their carbon all over our faces, I guess we need to get serious about carbon capture. All right, so let's talk about all the various ways that we can pull carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. We can start with the more natural and biological options and then get into more technology-based ones later on. And since we already brought up trees, why not start there? Now, despite my rant earlier about people always bringing up planting trees, let me state unambiguously, yes, trees are awesome and we need to be planting more of them. But is planting trees enough to actually fix the problem? Like, is that even possible? Well, a study from 2019 set out to answer that question. It was led by Jean-Francois Bastien of ETH Zurich in Switzerland, and his team used satellite data to measure forest cover around the world and created a model for estimating the potential of Earth's forests. Basically starting by asking how many trees the Earth can actually support, how many trees we could possibly plant. And their model predicted that the Earth could support another 900 million hectares of forest, which is about 25% more than what it's got right now. And then by doing that, we could capture about 205 gigatons of carbon dioxide, reducing the atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide by about 25%. That would negate about half of all carbon dioxide emissions since 1960, or would make us carbon neutral for about the next 20 years at our current rate. So yeah, planting trees could get us to carbon neutral for the next 20 years. That is significant. It is a lot of trees though, like half a trillion trees. A billion hectares is about the size of the United States, just nothing but trees. According to Sasan Sachi, a senior scientist at JPL, quote, planting a billion hectares of trees won't be easy. If we follow the paper's recommendations, it could take between one and 2,000 years. And even if we could just snap our finger and plant all the trees today, it would still take the better part of a century for those trees to reach maturity. And then there's some more intangible issues around it, like how all that extra forest would affect the planet's albedo. 
Tree canopies are generally darker than the ground below. Trees also produce water vapor through evapotranspiration, which water vapor can increase the temperature of the atmosphere. Between those two things, you could actually see a warming effect in the near term. And then there's just the simple issue that forests require water, and in a lot of places they need that water for agriculture to feed the people living there. And this is why deforestation is happening in the first place. People aren't just cutting down trees for exercise, they're doing it because they need that land for, for food and for housing for the people that are living there. And this has gone up dramatically in the last 50 years. The numbers are actually quite staggering. According to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, about 7.3 million hectares of forest are lost every year. Roughly half of Earth's tropical forests have already been cleared, and in the continental United States, 90% of indigenous forests have been removed since 1600. So yes, we need to be planting trees if for no other reason than we have a lot of catching up to do. But even if trees are being cleared for farming, there are some farming practices that can sequester carbon as well. So back in the early 1930s, we were already struggling with the Great Depression, which was compounded by the problem of the Dust Bowl. Basically destructive farming practices that stripped the topsoil across the United States and combined with a historic drought in 1933 led to entire swaths of the country basically being turned into a desert. Over 100 million acres of soil was just swept off the ground in giant dust storms that drove millions of farmers to bankruptcy, and in many ways we're still recovering from it to this day. But this led to new farming practices like rotating crops and farm subsidies to allow farmers to let the soil rest between harvests and rebuild that topsoil. I bring that up to show that farming practices have been successfully used to prevent environmental collapse in the past. And we may need to do that again. And one of those methods is cover crops. Cover crops are crops that are planted just to improve the soil. They aren't anything that you would harvest and then sell. They serve a lot of purposes, including slowing erosion, improving soil health, enhancing water availability, smothering weeds, help control pests and diseases, and increases biodiversity. And, it turns out, sequester carbon, which itself is good for the soil. According to the Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources at the University of Nebraska, quote, soil carbon accumulation promotes aggregation of soil particles, soil water retention, microbial activity, nutrient cycling, and other key soil processes, enhancing overall soil fertility and productivity all of which boosts crop yields and improves the farm's bottom line. They basically work by pulling in CO2 through photosynthesis and then they lock that carbon away in their roots. And then when the plants die, their biomass gets fed into the soil, which puts all kinds of good stuff in there, including carbon. But kind of like the trees, we're starting from behind here. Research has shown that intensely managed soils have actually lost 50 to 70% of their carbon over the years. The good news is that agricultural soils are the largest terrestrial carbon sink that we have that could possibly sink 1,500 gigatons of carbon. So yeah, there's a lot of research going into this. Again, trying to balance the resources going into the cover crops versus what you get out of them. That's always gonna be an issue. But there are some other farming practices that can boost this even further. So there's this thing called rock weathering. It's basically uh, carbon dioxide and water reacting with silicate rocks to form a bicarbonate rock. This bicarbonate rock builds up in the Earth's crust and then over millions of years as the tectonic activity shifts the plates around it, then gets reintroduced into the atmosphere by volcanism. This is known as the carbonate silicate cycle. Well, enhanced rock weathering basically uses this phenomenon to work kind of the same way as the cover crops, except instead of plants pulling the carbon down into the soil, it's basalt. Basalt, also known as basalt. The idea is you take basalt, which is a silicate rock, grind it down into a dust and then spread it out over the fields and then well, that, that's it. That, that's all it is. The basalt dust then pulls carbon dioxide out of the air, sequesters it into the ground. That also gets used by the plants. This approach was studied by David Beerling, a biogeochemist at the University of Sheffield. And they estimated that doing this would remove between 0.5 billion and 2 billion tons of CO2 from the air each year, offsetting emissions from around 500 coal-fired power plants. And they've actually carried out some field trials on this that seem to bear out the modeling, removing CO2 by 40%. There are, of course, wait for it, 
some caveats. First of all, like any of the solutions here, in order to scale it up for it to be effective, it's going to be a monumental challenge. Plus, we don't really know what the long-term effects of this kind of altering the geochemical cycle could have, especially as it starts to get washed into rivers and oceans. Although the study did say that it could have a positive effect in the ocean because it could counter the acidification that's been happening because of the CO2 being captured into the water, so it could be positive at first, but we still don't know the long-term effects of this. Plus, the mining and pulverizing and transporting of all that basalt rock is going to be really energy intensive and not cheap either. Uh, it's estimated that it might cost between $80 and $180 per ton of CO2 that's captured. Although, the boost in crop yields might make it worth it to the farmers. But ultimately, it will be up to the farmers to make this happen. This is their land and their livelihood, so the incentives are going to have to be compelling for them to adopt them. And, you know, it's going to have to be site-specific. Farmers in different places have different needs. It'll probably be a tough sell, whether we're talking about cover crops or basalt spreading. But, uh, you know, we've done it before. Maybe we can do it again. Now, on the topic of rock weathering, there are some other uh, applications that take advantage of this uh, mineralization technique that are worth talking about. There are methods that involve pumping alkaline spring water to the surface, and the silicate minerals that are naturally in that water can just absorb the CO2 out of the atmosphere. Some ideas involve pumping air over mine tailings that are high in silicate material. Mine tailings are basically the leftover throwaway stuff that usually comes out of mining. And when we talk about pumping CO2 into the ground, a big part of that is pumping it into places where it could, you know, turn into carbonite and mineralize in the ground. So carbon mineralization is a big part of a lot of our carbon storage solutions, including something that'll come up later. I did a video a while back about algae biofuels and about how we can basically take the algae biomass and speed up the process that we use to make the fuels that we use today. All that depends on algae's ability to manipulate carbon through photosynthesis. In other words, pull carbon from the air. Now, while using algae to make biofuels plays a small part in reducing our emissions, uh, it can also be used as a carbon sink. And this might be a good time to talk about the elephant in the room. So, so far in this video, I've only talked about land-based solutions, but the Earth is 70% water. So, really, ocean-based concepts might be the most effective. Now, the ocean already absorbs a massive amount of CO2. In fact, one-third of our emissions eventually wind up in the ocean. But this is another problem. Carbon dioxide is water-soluble, meaning it mixes with water to create carbonic acid. And this is why a glass of water that's been left out sitting, you know, for a day or so kind of starts to taste weird. This lower pH level is leading to ocean acidification, which is doing things like bleaching coral reefs and making it so that oysters and other shellfish can't make their shells. But the ocean is also home to algae and seaweed, which have enormous carbon sink potential. Some ideas floating around, see what I did there? include uh, basically seeding the ocean with algae and, and seaweed blooms, and maybe even using a technique like the basalt technique that I was talking about earlier on the crops. You know, basically alkaline minerals that could affect the pH balance in the oceans. Now, the good thing about algae and seaweed versus, say, trees is they can spread out and cover a larger surface area, basically pulling in more carbon and then eventually sinking down to the ocean floor. Now, this is rife with issues and affects wildlife in ways that we can't be sure of right now, but algae can be used in more controlled applications as well. In fact, it's been estimated that algae, when used in AI-powered bioreactors, is up to 400 times more efficient than a tree at removing CO2 from the atmosphere. And this algae has a host of uses that can replace fossil fuels, not just with, with fuel production and whatnot, but it can also be made into polymer materials like plastics that can lock away that carbon into the stuff that we use. Now, all of that is, of course, contingent on the cost of algae-made products being as cheap or cheaper than fossil fuel-made products, which we're a long way from that, but there's research going into it. Now, one more ocean-based solution that 
might be kind of controversial is deep ocean sequestration. This is in a lot of ways like the mineralization technique that I was talking about earlier, except being pumped into rocks is being pumped into the ocean, but way, way, way down in the ocean. Because while the top kilometer of surface ocean has seen its CO2 concentrations rising, the same isn't true for deep ocean water. So the idea is if you pump CO2 either in liquid or gaseous form, the pressure down there will cause it to dissolve really quickly, and this increases the density of the water, and then it sinks down to the ocean floor. Effectively, you're creating CO2 lakes at the bottom of the ocean. Now this is really more of a carbon storage solution than a carbon capture solution, but since we were already talking about ocean stuff, I thought it was worth mentioning. Now, so far we've talked about natural and biological solutions for locking away carbon, and this was a very high-level overview, and there's a lot that I couldn't get to and didn't talk about, and there's probably some stuff that I missed. If there is, and there's something that you want to bring to the table, talk about it down in the comments below. But now let's talk about the real room splitter, the more technology-based solutions around carbon capture. So I talked about carbon capture in a previous video a while back, but simply put, it's basically like a giant vacuum cleaner that pulls in air and traps the CO2. Now there's a few different ways of doing this, and a few different companies that have pioneered this effort. Carbon Engineering, based out of British Columbia, uses a solution of hydroxide to grab onto the CO2, and then it has to be heated to high temperatures to release the CO2 for storage. Their business model relies on selling the CO2 to make new products, the most profitable being synthetic jet fuel. So again, more carbon neutral than carbon negative, of course, if other less burny products are made, that would lock it away for good. Climeworks, based out of Switzerland, takes a different approach. Their process uses amine absorbents in small modular reactors that cost a bit more right now, but it's thought that the potential savings down the road could be higher. The idea is that the modular design could make them cheaper to produce when scaled up, and it requires lower temperatures, so waste heat could be used in the process. This seems to be a similar model being followed by another company called Global Thermostat, who want to partner up with industrial plants and use their waste heat to capture carbon out of the air and then offset that plant's emissions. Now both of these methods are tried and tested technology, which is a good thing, but the downside is that they do take a lot of energy. Uh, in fact, some estimates have said that by the year 2100, for it to be an effective mitigation technique, it would require about a quarter of the world's energy production. Obviously that's a problem. But there is a new method out of MIT called the Electro-Swing Adsorption Technique. No, it's not named after the musical style. Which there are worse things. No, it was developed by the postdoc Sahag Voskian while working on his PhD with guidance by Alan Hatton, the professor of chemical engineering in 2019. And before I describe this, just let me say, I, I love this. I, I love everything about this. It's basically a kind of battery featuring a stack of electrode plates that are coated with a compound called polyanthroquinone, which is composited with carbon nanotubes. In these plates, when you run an electric charge over them, they have a natural affinity for carbon dioxide that attract carbon dioxide molecules to the plates. So you introduce an electric current to the plates, run air through it, and the carbon dioxide in the air sticks to the plates like a magnet. Once that cycle is over, it turns off the electric charge, or swings the electricity to an uncharged state, if you will, and the CO2 molecules flow free. It then pumps the CO2 out to do with that what you will. It can work in low and high concentrations, so it can clean exhaust flues or just pull the CO2 out of the air. It works at room temperature and uses very little energy. The authors of this paper point out that in some uh, soda bottling plants, you know, they use CO2 to put the fizz into the water. They often burn fossil fuels in order to get CO2 to do that. This could take the place of that. And the same is true for farmers that use carbon dioxide to put into their greenhouses to feed their plants. This device, this battery, could just pull the CO2 out of the air and just put it right into those plants. Bottling plants and plant plants. 
So far they've been able to get it up to 7,000 cycles with about a 30% loss in efficiency, but they think they can get that up to 20,000 or even 50,000 cycles. Now obviously it's still early for this technology and I don't know what kind of costs are involved uh, whenever you start talking about nanotechnology that seems to be pretty expensive, so we'll see. But there's a lot that I like about this technology and I look forward to hearing more about it in the future. Now all these solutions can of course apply to CCS, the carbon capture and sequestration I was talking about earlier, uh, which is obviously controversial. And this is, you know, any, any technology that can pull CO2 out of the air can be applied to smokestacks and power generation plants to pull it out of the air there too. Though I have to say, I don't really consider CCS to be a part of this particular conversation because I'm talking about pulling carbon out of the air and CCS is really more about mitigating the amount of emissions that are coming out of plants. So it's really more of a carbon reduction technique more than a carbon removal technique. With one exception, there is one type of CCS that does have a net negative carbon footprint and that's the old BCCS, biomass with carbon capture and sequestration. Now earlier when I was talking about trees and cover crops and seaweed and algae, those are all biomass that pull carbon out of the air and then either go into the soil or get sunk down to the bottom of the ocean. But something else that you can do with it is burn it. Biomass energy is basically burning biomass to create electricity. If you've ever put wood in a fireplace and burned it, then you have used biomass to heat your home. Uh, basically, if you use that heat to boil water, to turn a steam turbine, to create electricity, that's biomass energy. So biomass basically works the same as coal, uh, different efficiencies and whatnot, but it's the same idea. But biomass is considered somewhat carbon neutral because the carbon that you're putting in the atmosphere by burning it was carbon that was recently pulled out of the atmosphere by the biomass that you're burning. But if you capture that carbon and prevent it from going back up into the atmosphere, that's carbon negative, my friend. Biomass is generally burned in the form of wood pellets that are often made from sawmill dust and leftover waste from tree clearing. Now, biomass is actually fairly controversial because depending on how you do it, it can be actually more energy intensive and maybe even put more CO2 into the atmosphere than coal. And that's partly because of the effort that it takes to produce and transport the pellets, but also, Biomass just doesn't burn as easily and as efficiently as coal does. So you have to burn a whole lot more of it to get the same amount of energy out of it as you do coal. So the environmentally friendliness of BCCS relies a lot more on the CCS part of that equation. And many of these procedures are still woefully inadequate. But there are advocates working on the efficiency of biomass and other uh, options that are being worked on that include using bacteria to decompose the biomass and then create gases that can be used. Speaking of making things out of things, our last one involves carbon absorbing construction materials. That was a segue worthy of OLF. When I was talking about carbon mineralization earlier, I said that there was one more option that I would be bringing up. Well, here it is. The concrete industry is actually one of the world's worst emitters of CO2 into the atmosphere. They make up 8% of all carbon emissions. If it were a country, it would be the third worst country in the world. Now I keep using the word concrete, it's actually the cement that's the problem. And I will admit that in the past I've interchangeably used the words concrete and cement, but those are actually two different things. Concrete as a building material is a mix of sand, gravel, water, and a cement binder. That binder that we use in most modern concrete is often called Portland cement. Now it's been around for a couple hundred years now, and it involves roasting limestone and clay in an oven and then grinding it into a powder. That powder is then mixed with iron ore or ash and spun at giant kilns and up to 1450 degrees Celsius, enabling a chemical process called calcination, which creates calcium oxide and CO2. Ultimately, this creates marble-sized gray balls known as clinker. So it's not only hugely energy intensive, but the process itself creates CO2. Now there are a ton of ideas that are being put forward out there to try to cut down on this, including just CCS, just like from a coal plant. 
But others are focusing on creating entirely new uh, construction materials that just work differently, uh, uh, alternative cement, if you will. There are companies working on new types of cement that either use CO2 as a binding agent in the cement or are made out of silicate materials that can capture CO2 from the atmosphere using that mineralization technique. Imagine if new buildings were built with a type of material that actually pulled CO2 out of the atmosphere to cure it or to make it stronger or give it better insulation properties. A company called Carbon Cure is working on this with backing from Bill Gates to pump CO2 into their concrete where it mineralizes and stays locked in there forever. So instead of pumping CO2 into the ground, we could just pump it into the buildings that we live in. I mean, imagine if you combine this with that MIT capture device that I was talking about before. You could just have it right there on site. It pulls the CO2 in, you pump that into the cement, it goes up into a building, just all in one. Yeah, this is really exciting stuff. Now this is still new technology. I'm not sure about the economics behind it. Obviously that needs to be improved before it can be adopted around the world, but it's got a lot of potential. And it's just one of many opportunities to create a carbon market. Which brings me back to the XPRIZE. The Carbon X Prize competition was centered specifically on creating uses for CO2 that would incentivize people to capture it out of the air and then sell it to create a value around it, to create a market around carbon. Like imagine if that MIT idea, or something even better, could be sold as a box that you could just put on the side of your house or something, and it could just capture CO2 and collect it into compressed air tanks, and then once a month or so, a company will come by and pick up those tanks and replace it with a new one, an empty one, carry it away, and you just get a check for it. I'd sign up for that. I mean, maybe instead of mining Bitcoin, the next big mining opportunity is mining the sky. With this new carbon removal X prize, we might be able to do that someday. And I think it's pretty cool. I think with both of these competitions are kind of hitting the problem from both sides. Now, this was again, was just a very high level overview. There's a lot of nuances and details that got left out. The devil's in the details as we all know. So feel free to pick them apart down in the comments below. But I want to reiterate, none of these ideas are meant to single-handedly shoulder the burden of removing carbon from the atmosphere, and none of them are meant to negate the need to reduce emissions, okay? This is, this is all the things. We gotta do all the things. From where I'm standing, we don't have the luxury of being choosy at this point. If there's something that can make a difference, it's on the table. Hashtag team all the things. But talk below about what team you're on. And on the flip side of the equation, if you want to know more about uh, reducing the amount of emissions going up, you want to learn more about solar energy, then I can highly recommend the solar energy course on Brilliant. How exactly a bunch of photovoltaic cells turn photons into electrons is not as complex as you might think. And the solar energy course breaks it down with 30 interactive quizzes and over 245 exercises that break down the basics of electromagnetic radiation, absorption and emission, thermal and PV generation, and they even get into energy markets and how they work. So by the time you're done, you'll have a better understanding of solar energy than 95% of people out there and can set people straight in just about any conversation. That, of course, is just the start with Brilliant because from there you can advance through more than 60 courses covering everything from classical physics, quantum mechanics courses, applied science, even search engines and neural networks. And you do it by problem solving, which kind of hacks your brain's natural learning skills so you can learn it in the way that makes the most sense to you and you can apply it to other areas of your life. Plus, you can do it on your mobile device and even offline, so you can take it with you wherever you go. And if you want to get a taste of what I'm talking about, they have free daily brain teasers, and you can do the first section of any of their courses for free, so you can see what they're all about. But if you want to sign up for the premium subscription that gives you access to all their courses, and you're one of the first 200 people to do so, you can get 20% off by going to brilliant.org slash answerswithjoe. Link for that is down in the description. I've vouched for Brilliant before. I do like Brilliant. It kind of teaches you things in a way, for me anyway, that it just helps things to stick better than just kind of book reading or somebody up at a chalkboard. It's just, it's just a different way of thinking and, and it works better for me. It might work better for you. So definitely check it out if you haven't yet. 
All right, big thanks to Brilliant for supporting this video and a huge shout out to the Answer Files on Patreon that are supporting this channel, helping me support a team and just forming an awesome community. I love some of the conversations that go on there. Uh, there's some new people that I got to murder their names real quick. We've got Michael Kozarik, who actually uh, upgraded his uh, his thing. He's been around for a long time. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Florian Gerhards, Jim Terre, Yvonne Acevedo, uh, Daniel, Tokyo Explorer, Ryan Klein, Slightly Nerdy, uh, Corey Ratchik, Cam Nascon, Apocalypse Cal, welcome back. Uh, Dakota R. Johnson, Jerky Pasila, Corey Goss, Caveman Barbecue, Swagger Buns, love it. Jens Christian Hoos, uh, Joshua Merchant, and Mark Berenger. Thank you guys so much. If you'd like to join them, get early access to videos, and just join an awesome community, uh, as well as exclusive live streams, all kinds of fun stuff, you can go to patreon.com slash answerswithjoe. Please do like and share this video if you liked it. Only if you liked it. And if this is your first time here, um, Google says to watch this. You wouldn't want to let Google down. Uh, or any of the little videos on the side that have my face on, go check those out. And if you do enjoy them, uh, I invite you to subscribe. I come back with videos every Monday. All right, that's it for now. Um, I do want to say thanks to everybody real quick who sent uh, words of encouragement and checking out with me uh, with the whole thing that was going on here in Texas with the weather and everything. We came through it just fine. Uh, but uh, I just wanted to say thanks because there was a lot of really nice comments that were coming out. So thank you for that. Uh, so you guys go out there. Have an eye-opening week. And I'll see you next Monday. Love you guys. Take care.